Welcome to Lightning in a Bottle, a podcast series for owners and key stakeholders in privately held companies and the professionals that surround them. My name is Josh Pottinger, and together with Jason Georgianis, we run ATX Wealth Partners here at UBS. Jason and I have been teamed up now for over 20 years, and each of us has over 25 years of experience in the financial services industry. Our goal is to bring real-world perspectives to help you prepare yourself, your family, and your business for the day that you decide to monetize some or all of your ownership position in the company. Throughout this series, we will provide our own thoughts as well as interview key people along the way. Feel free to email us at atxwealthpartners at ubs.com. And with that, let's go ahead and get started. Good morning, everyone here in the States. Good afternoon to our guest, Matthew Carter. He's over in the UK this afternoon. And Jason, my business partner, is going to be out today or this morning. He's not going to be participating in the podcast. So you've got me and Matthew today, which is going to be just fine. Matthew, can you hear me okay? Sure can. Okay, great. So for folks that don't know who Matthew is, he's an investment strategist in our UBS chief investment office. And his main responsibility is to formulate research for business owners, executives, and entrepreneurs. And Matthew joined UBS back in 2015 as a multi-asset strategist. And his work has been covered in the UBS House View, sustainable and impact investing, and also strategies for ultra-high net worth investors. Matthew began his career over at Merrill Lynch Wealth Management in London in 2010, and he holds a master's degree in economics from Corpus Christi College, Cambridge, for our United States folks who are here in Texas. We have a, a Corpus Christi down, down in South Texas, so Cambridge is not in South Texas. <laughs> Matthew? I was going to mention that for folks because I did remember that there was a Corpus Christi in Texas, and I dare say that it's a bit different to the tiny college of 250 undergraduates that I attended. That is a small college. I, uh, I'm actually, my daughter right now is starting to think about college. She's a sophomore in high school. So one of our first action items is to get a sense of, does she like a smaller college or a larger college? And then go from there. So Matthew, one of the things that intrigued us about having you on the podcast today was the amount of content that you've been publishing out there. You're very, very active on LinkedIn. So for the listeners out there, I would encourage you to find Matthew Carter on LinkedIn and subscribe to him. He puts some really, really good stuff out there. But one of the things that we wanted to touch on in today's conversation is really something around family succession planning. So as everyone knows, ATX Wealth Partners, we're focused on uh, on helping owners and key stakeholders of privately held companies manage that life cycle sort of before, during, and after they exit. And you know, while a lot of the clients that we work with are primarily your traditional entrepreneurs and are ultimately end up exit through being purchased by a private equity firm or a larger strategic, the family succession side of things is a whole nother ball game. And Matthew, you've done a bunch of work in this space, and I thought it would be helpful to have you on today to kind of dig into this a little bit for those out there that that might be running a family-owned business and, and thinking through, what does my exit look like? So I think let's kick it off here, Matthew, with my first question, which is in one of your research papers, you say that the idea of succession planning is incomplete. What does that mean for business owners? Let's talk about that. 
Well, I think that there's a lot of emphasis put by various trusted advisors on this term succession planning. But when I was starting to speak to more business owners and entrepreneurs, it seemed to me as if we were only really looking at one piece of the puzzle here. I think that really succession, particularly family succession, is sort of like a three-part process. And I think that really the three stages are talk, plan, and do. One of the things that's particularly important, I think, in in family-owned or family-run businesses is this need for communication of talk. And I just don't think that it can be overstated. But it is also one of those things that can sometimes be the most challenging thing within a family. Families obviously love one another in, in most instances, and they have those familial ties and those emotional ties. But when you obviously have a commercial enterprise involved and maybe other financial assets that are under the family sort of purview, then it can really become very complicated to figure out questions that I'm sure we'll touch on later, like equality versus equity when it comes to passing assets down to the next generation. So I think the talk really is one of these critical factors that is needed to establish clear family, stakeholder, business partner agreements on decision-making. I think you really need to have talk, planning, and, and an execution to figure out the question about the big C, control, who controls what. And I think that many business owners sink all their time, talent, and treasure into their business primarily. But a big thing that one needs to really consider from a very early stage is what the family's future is going to be beyond the business. And that's more than just the financial wealth aspect. Many family business owners, particularly if they're looking to sell or they're looking to pass down to the next generation, and this is a multi-generational business, their identity is often very closely tied to the business itself. So letting go, whether to daughter or son, or letting go to an external buyer, it can be a bigger deal when you're on the other side of the transaction than you ever thought beforehand. I think that planning as well has a number of facets to it. So yeah, it's planning if you're looking to hand over the business to the next generation or sell. Business continuity, how do your commercial operations go on without you as the founder maybe, or as the sort of matriarch or patriarch? It goes with that thing. And then there's a financing aspect as well for the firm too. So will you have to renegotiate agreements with lenders? What are the terms of the ideal deal if you're looking to exit? But I think that the plan is so much more than that. It's personal wealth planning. It's what comes next. It's how you're going to fund it. And then as we said earlier, I think there's also that really crucial element of family wealth planning too. Every family business is different, but there's always going to be some degree of financial connection to the underlying sort of operating company. And in some instances, if children or if family members have been working in the business, building up sweat equity, it's part of their sort of work and their their identity too. And I think that talking about what happens next is, is super important. And then I think that on the do side, so the third leg of this talk plus plan do structure, yes, there's a lot of focus from many trusted advisors on the business handover or the sale or the succession, the point of the move, as it were, or the point that you hand over the keys and you, you bank the check. But I think that speaking to many business owners, one of the biggest transitions that's really tricky and I think needs to be addressed well before a sale is 
How do you make that transition from being a business owner to effectively your own wealth manager sitting on a, a sum of liquidity? And I think that business owners often have a huge amount of, of acumen and have successfully built up a business. But the, the skills you need to, to run and to manage a business successfully and then take it to the next stage don't map one for one for the skills that you might need to be an investor or a philanthropist. So I think that having some ideas on how you make that transition from business owner to wealth manager are, again, something that cannot be overstated and, and cannot start too early, really. Mm-hmm. I love the way you break down the three phases so simply, talk, plan, and do. And for an owner out there, you know, at what point do you think it makes sense for them to start even talking about it? Do you have a sense of a time frame, age? Like, what are the inputs there where they start to think? Yeah, sure. Well, I I think that in some ways, as early as you possibly can start talking about it, I think that it's somewhat of a how long is a piece of string question, and it also depends on family dynamics. But to be honest, I really do get a sense that just as many wealthy families struggle to understand when should they start talking to their children about money in general and how do they start with basic budgeting through to an introduction to say debt versus debt and and credit cards and then going into sort of like the 101 of investing Mm -hmm. i do think that if you can start having really natural conversations about the family business what it means to the family what it means maybe to the stakeholders or the communities that you support If you can start to give them sort of a little steer, not just of their rights, and effectively when the time is right, maybe they enter into their teen years, basically where the money's coming from and what uses it's put towards. But also I think sometimes it might be easier to engage with younger folks, less on the right side and more on the responsibilities. I mean, many family business owners that I speak to really do feel a sense of, of wanting to care for the communities in which they operate. And multi-generational family businesses are often part of the fabric of a town or a city or a region. And so instilling perhaps a sense of responsibility in younger children of this is how we run the family business. These are our values. These are the people that are part of our, our community, our extended family in many instances. And they support us by building and growing the business and we support them with jobs. I think that giving a sense of that responsibility is something that can really be instilled and and educated into children at quite a young age. I mean, I do remember one concrete example of speaking to a business owner in the UK, a fifth generation business that had been operating for more than 100 years in the consumer goods sector. And the the current chairman of of the business really wanted to bring the family on board. And so he decided that it would be a great idea to bring in many of the directors who were either his children or cousins of his brother, and even the grandchildren. I think the youngest was 14. And they all took part together in a back-to-school exercise. They went to a course on, on basically family enterprise, family governance for business owners at the London School of Economics. And I think that it was a real eye-opener to bringing that G3, as it were, the sort of the grandchildren into that discussion, but also learning together too. And we can touch on that a little bit later, but I think the learning together is super important and, and trying to get that sort of power dynamic right, because the control issue is one that I'm sure we'll talk about later. And I think that 
clearly you need to have leaders and followers, even within a family. But I think that if one doesn't try to find those opportunities to be sort of family members, first of all, but also peers and, and allow people to express their views and have a, a right to be heard, I think that if the control dynamic becomes too overarching, it can ironically be that the matriarch or patriarch who wants to still keep their hand on the tiller is so overbearing that it can actually lead to less than optimal outcomes later down the line and even take the business or the family wealth or the relationships within the family in totally the opposite direction to what the founder ever or the main the main sort of figure today would ever have wanted. Yeah, I think communication is so important, not only in our professional lives, but in our personal lives as well, right? I mean, if you don't have good communication, then things just start to break down. And so the talk phase is super important. And I love the idea that that family went together. I mean, it shows a little bit of humility too, I think. It's like, this isn't a dictatorship, you know? It's like, you've got, you know, grandpa that's rolling the roost and is in charge of everything and what he says is what happens versus saying, hey, let's collectively, let's bring everybody together and learn together yeah. and figure yeah. out the right path. I think that's super powerful. Yeah, we, on our tagline, if you will, that's on our website is you have options, be informed and plan early. And so talking and learning, you start to understand your options and you become more informed. And if you do this early enough, you're going to be so much better for it. And you're going to improve the odds of being a successful business that can last beyond a generation or two generations or even more. So I saw, speaking of which, I think that makes sense as a good headway here. <laughs> I saw a statistic from Trust in the States saying that 85% of family businesses never make it down to the next generation. So what are the three biggest obstacles to a successful succession plan? I think that in a nutshell... The first is not being open. The second is not letting go. And the third is thinking that writing is a substitute to actually talking. So the not being open point, let's unpack that a little bit. I think that that lack of transparency around how decisions are made in a family-run firm, and that point that you alluded to about it potentially being seen as a dictatorship, and it's, it's one voice that makes all the decisions, that lack of transparency, I think, is something that can really lead to the undoing, not just of the commercial side of the sort of family enterprise, but also the private wealth and even the relationships. I think that number two, not letting go, it comes back to this sort of anchor word that I think is super important with business owners, and it's about control. So it's not uncommon for there to be discussions about passing things down to the next generation. And for example, there to be changes in the board structure so that a younger family member effectively becomes like the CEO of the family-led enterprise. And then the matriarch or patriarch stays on as the chairman. But if there aren't clear boundaries set about what's really been handed over and how much control rests with that older generation, then there's a risk that the younger generation feel disempowered because if they want to do something that goes against the grain of the family business or goes against the recent history, I should really say, of the family business, and they want to do something that's a little bit more sort of out of the box or a little bit more radical, if they always feel that there's mom or pop there saying, I veto that decision, we're doing things my way, mm -hmm. that's very disempowering for, 
for that next generation. Gosh, I got, I've got a client that's dealing with that right now. We have a client right now that's dealing with that exact same issue. And it's such a, it's an issue, you know, it's been an issue. And the father passed away, but he was super old school. And the son came up and decided to peel out and do his own thing that's more, a little bit more technology oriented and taking some risks. And it was, it was very challenging for him, not getting that, you know, sort of blessing from, from dad. And now he's dealing with the aftermath of that because there, there's another gentleman who, so his father passed away and there's another gentleman that is basically has a significant amount of decision-making at the company. You know, it's a challenge to make that transition. Your point is spot, spot on. Yeah, it's super difficult within the family dynamics, but also as well, imagine that you're in sort of like a long-standing business, but it's facing what you could call its Kodak moment, right? So it's at that point in its history where you have to pivot and there's an element of, I guess, do or die around it. You either have to move on to a new way of working, adopting new technologies. And sometimes, I mean, it's not uncommon when business owners have been leaving the firm for 35, 40 years, and they know that there's a big structural change coming. The COVID pandemic was a really good example, right? I mean, for some business owners who were perhaps later on in life and had been running the family business for many years, the degree of technological adoption in COVID and how many things, particularly in Europe, went from being physical stores to online almost overnight, and the concept of home working went from being an oddity to almost ubiquitous. For many older business owners, that was a really big shift. And, and it made them ask themselves, do I have the appetite to stay at the helm of the business and oversee a big structural transformation? Or is now actually the right time to hand over to the next generation with the fresh ideas and who may be more familiar with some of these new foundational technologies? And so in these periods of structural change, sometimes both sides, the younger generation and the older generation, have to accept that decisions will be made that, that neither party is entirely happy about. But it's about compromise. So maybe if we replace the C word of control with the C word of compromise, we can get to a better space, not just for today, but for the longer term financial, commercial, personal, relational health of the family. And then I think that a related point to that, this point three about writing rather than talking, this is a real challenge around succession. There are elements of succession that have to be formally decided upon. And for many family businesses, for example, they might choose to tackle thorny issues through talking, but then they write this down, they codify it in something like a family constitution. It's the rule book when it comes to dealing with the family business. And it's the go-to resource when tensions arise so that you've got, I guess, an impartial rule book that everyone agreed to when it wasn't emotional and there wasn't a big issue that really raised people's hackles, etc. There is also a challenge with succession as well in believing that succession is all about having formal documents, wills, trusts, expressions of wishes. There needs to be an element, I think, of discussion within the lifetime to really understand what those sort of needs are. And I think that the other big challenge that we talk about in the paper as well, and it's an analogy I like to use, some business owners might think that succession is a photograph. So you take a snapshot in time, you do your succession planning as a thought exercise in the same way that you might do business continuity planning or figure out 
what would happen from a risk management perspective if your main supplier suddenly went out of business. So it's a one-in-time exercise that's fairly academic. And you write stuff down, you have a plan, and then it sits on paper. There's the famous phrase, everyone has a plan until they're punched in the mouth. And there's an element of truth in that in the sense that just having a single plan on paper that isn't dynamic and moves with the needs of your business and your family is not going to be an optimal outcome. But I think there's more on that. The phrase I like to use is that succession is a movie and it's not a photo. So it has to be a dynamic process. The actual way that you do the talking, the planning and the execution, for example, it very much depends on how your family dynamics are changing. Death and incapacity are the worst things that can obviously happen and they can really lead to huge amounts of emotions and, and throw plans into disarray. The nature of modern families where there might be divorces or separations or new partners coming on, that can change the sort of dynamics within the business. We only have to see in financial markets how much, for example, the funding environment changed over the course of 2022 into 2023. We had a bump of first quarter if you were looking to attract, say, VC investors. But over the course of several months, particularly for those high-tech industries, it felt as if you went from deluge to drought when it came to raising capital. So I think that over-relying on a single document and thinking it's a one-and-done exercise rather than the movie approach, not the photo approach, but the movie approach, that this succession, talking, planning, execution needs to evolve as the business, the family, and the world at large evolves. I think that's a super important point too. I love the photo movie expression because it's very true just in, in the way we work with our clients each and every year. You know, if there's a significant life event, it's important to kind of readdress and pivot or adjust your game plan. And, you know, with respect to the talk phase, too, I'll steal another expression that another colleague of ours used, which is, you know, when speaking about money to your children, think of it as, rather than thinking of it as an on-off switch, think of it more as a dimmer switch. And, you know, you as a parent know where your child is, you know, mentally and physically and emotionally. And so you you can kind of gauge when it's appropriate and how much information to kind of let them know about. And so I think that's real helpful. It's, it's been helpful in, in my conversations that I've had with people as well because people do think it's more of an on-off switch. It's like, oh, I, I'm not going to tell them everything that we're doing. It's like, well, you don't have to. St start small. I think speaking to our clients, we know that succession or exit conversations can be tough to start. It's overwhelming. Like it's a challenge for us when we – People go, okay, what's involved with this? It's like, there's a lot of different moving parts here. And inevitably, people get a little overwhelmed and they're so focused on the business and putting up fires and executing the business plan that they don't begin the process soon enough. They don't start talking. They don't start educating. And they're like, I'll do it later. I'll do it later. I'll do it later. And then all of a sudden, they get an interesting offer and they haven't had time to do that powerful pre-liquidity right. planning that they could have yeah. done. So, and I think this kind of plays on our earlier conversation, which is, you know, how should business owners begin that process? Well, I think that the first thing that I would say from speaking to a number of business owners in the research for this paper and then presenting it afterwards, there's no one size fits all. Every business owner and every family is, of course, different. 
So I think that having an openness and a, and a flexibility to maybe trying a bunch of different ways to approach starting the conversation can be super helpful. I mean, one way could be that if you are a business owner, and particularly if you're, you're looking for an exit, but two, if you're looking to pass the business on to family members, I think one way to start is to basically get your own house in order. So you build your own financial plan about your needs today, your needs for the rest of your lifetime and your, your capital needs beyond your lifetime. And then you sort of work backwards because if you have your own hopes and aspirations of retirement, serial entrepreneurship, maybe becoming a philanthropist, you're going to need capital. And many business owners will have grown up in an environment where effectively they look to their balance sheet, that the large majority of it is in an illiquid business, which is theirs, is privately held. So having that financial plan, figuring out how much capital you might need and exploring ways to release it well ahead of time, as you quite rightly say, can be a good way to sort of start the plan and then work backwards. So that's one option. And I think once you have this in place and can think in terms of those different spending requirements, it can then make it easier to engage with other stakeholders because you've effectively got your own ideas clarified in your mind. And as those conversations evolve about what family members want, what their capital needs might be, and crucially what their sort of human capital needs are, their emotional needs, then you can really start to move I guess, away from that sea of control towards that sea of compromise and trying to find something that works for everyone. I think the other way to start the sort of conversations, I guess, is it's particularly relevant for those closely held businesses, maybe with sort of smaller family units. And that's the way of, of looking at sort of succession conversations as being a good risk management tool. So business owners are accustomed to this idea of having to do risk assessments and, and maybe maybe they have an annual exercise where they do sort of quote unquote disaster planning or whatever, where they, they think of the unexpected and say, how would we respond in that situation? Our key supplier suddenly goes out of business. And I think that the succession element or the exit planning, it's really part of parcel of that risk management exercise too. It's just you speak to many business owners around succession planning as just a general topic. And there can be an element of, I'm too busy with the opco to really focus on that today, or I'm very early on in my career and succession planning is something that I'll do when I'm a, a gran or a, a grandpa rather than where I am today. But as we mentioned earlier, you can't really start planning soon enough. And I'd also say that in certain jurisdictions, decisions that you make as a founder today they can close doors later on in terms of potential exit solutions. The way you incorporate it, for example, can potentially have implications on the final liquidity amount that you receive and the types of buyers that look at your company. I think for family enterprises as well, a third way to sort of figure it out is that is to think about succession in terms of the ties that bind, right? So what I mean by that is that, yes, your succession is going to involve business elements, operational elements, as we discussed. It's going to involve your own personal financial planning, and it's going to involve thinking about the financial resilience and the financial success of, of future family generations. But sometimes what can really start those conversations is to find that common ground that you have as a family. 
if it's a long-standing family business, you can start the succession conversations by talking about the history of the business, how the business relates to your family identity and your standing in the community. And then when you're telling that history story, you can then link that up to maybe giving anecdotes of how prior generations managed the succession. And be honest, what worked and what didn't. Start the conversations that way. It could be that when you're thinking about life beyond the business as a founder, that the shared family interest is in philanthropy. So you start this ball rolling by saying, what I really want to do when the time is right is to support this good cause locally or this good cause nationally, internationally. But to do that as a family, we're going to have to raise capital. And to do that and for me to have the time to give to philanthropy, one of you folks is going to have to take the business over. Or equally, as I mentioned earlier, it could be that you see succession planning as not just a responsibility and a right for your family, but also something that matters to your local community, particularly if you're operating and have operated in a particular area for a long time. And the sign to your premises or your company's name is, is, a, is a household name in the town. Having a plan for the future then becomes not just a responsibility for you as a family unit, but maybe for a much wider community. So a couple of ways to do it. Build your own financial plan and reverse engineer it. Think of succession planning as a good risk management exercise. And we know with risk management, it's best to be open and transparent rather than stick your head in the sand. Or particularly for families, and particularly for those families maybe where there are simmering tensions over the business or non-business issues, try and start the conversation with common ground and the ties that bind you rather than the stuff that, that maybe sets you apart. Yeah, I think having that conversation around succession planning added to your annual strategy meeting moves that topic from you know more of a taboo, something we don't talk about, to putting it front and center and and having that conversation. So people are just now it's, we're used to having that conversation each and every year. Not that you're going to exit, not that it's time, but it's now part of the conversation. That was a suggestion that was made by one of our past guests, is just add it to the annual agenda. Have that conversation. I think that's that's good advice. Another tool that you mentioned to help building effective communication is, is having an independent board of directors. Can you dig into that a little bit? Sure, sure. So I think that sometimes, even in the most functional families, it's helpful to have sort of like a fresh set of eyes, right? We'll take a step back and look a little bit at some of, I guess, the nerdy, more technical, theoretical ways of looking at families. And it's a helpful framework, but let's face it, it's not entirely like real life. But I'll walk you through it anyway. So Harvard Business School quite famously did a study in the late 1980s where they said that one way to look at family members within a family enterprise or a family business is to put them in, I guess, one of three uh, categories. So you might have the owner-operator, your classical founder or entrepreneur who built the business, they largely own it, but they're also operationally in charge of sort of like the day-to-day. And some of their motivations are going to be maximizing the underlying value of the business, both financially and maybe for a wider community and a family, but also not making rash financial decisions that either threaten operational viability or the ability to invest for the future. You might have a bunch of other family members who are basically owners but don't have that operational acumen. 
And while they're aware that if you make rash financial decisions, you might threaten the overall health of the company and your dividend flows, for example, their motivations are often much more around trying to, for example, maintain regular distributions out of the business to fund their lifestyle or to support their own entrepreneurial ventures. And then there's another bunch of people, I guess you could call general family members, who might not have a direct ownership stake. They might not directly work in the business, but they're part of this broader sort of like family enterprise. They might be running the philanthropic arm of your family's wealth, or they might be responsible for like the commercial real estate portfolio. And they've got a vested interest in the underlying operating company, but their sort of their goals and ambitions might be, be quite different. And they might rely on financial flows, but less so for their own personal needs and more to do with funding the family's philanthropy portfolio, for example. Now, these people are all part of the same family, but they're probably going to have very different motivations and they're probably going to have very different skill sets. And sometimes you just need that fresh pair of eyes, an independent board member who doesn't have those familial ties, has fewer emotional connections and can look more objectively at the situation. And sometimes they need to be present to help guide conversations and sometimes say, say really hard truths. And I think that they can offer that sort of outside view that at times, much as the role of a facilitator of our trusted advisor can really sort of like help to cut through the emotion and help to provide some clarity. And sometimes as well intense families, it's much easier if the really tough stuff is said by somebody that you don't then have to go home with and, and share a supper or spend all weekend with. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, there are a few ideas, I think, on why having that independent board of directors or at least some independence in there can really offer you that fresh perspective. And a, and a last sort of super quick point that comes back to our, our sort of prior part of the conversation, particularly in families where these conversations are thorny and difficult and folks just don't want to have them. Sometimes the independent directors can come in and say, you may not want to have these succession discussions. But because this is a family business and I'm a director and I have a fiduciary duty to the business, you have to realize that uncomfortable as it may be, talking about succession, making a plan and then executing, it's actually part of good corporate governance. So you do need to do this. We can't just sort of wait and see. Even in a closely held business where the family own all of the shares and if they don't talk and things go awry, the financial burden rests chiefly on them. There is an element, as I said before, about the communities you support, the stakeholders you support. And I think that sometimes that external perspective can sort of really remind you of the importance of succession, I guess, from a governance standpoint and not just as, as part of a healthy evolution of the business and of your family. You know, one of the most common and, as you say, potentially most destructive challenges is, is how to distribute the inheritance fairly. And what are your thoughts around that, where you have three children, one of them has been working in the business their entire professional life, the other two have nothing to do with the company? How do you think through that or help people think through that? Yeah, I mean, I think that, again, families will have different perspectives, but so often that I think there's a perception that Treating people equally 
is the same as treating people equitably or fairly. And I think you've raised a super relevant example there of, of somebody or of a family situation with the three children, there's somebody who's built up sweat equity and operational expertise being in the business. And then there's another two folks who they are sons and daughters or family members, but they've just not had that experience of the business. And I think that simply thinking that treating them equally and giving them each a third share in the business may end up over the longer term not really sort of suiting anyone at all. You may find that those family members who don't operate within the business misunderstand the liquidity needs of the business, for example, whether that's working capital, day-to-day cash flow, or retaining cash for longer-term investment. And they're thinking more about how do I extract my value from the business? So I think that Treating people equally versus equitably needs a lot of family thought, and that's a crucial topic that really needs to be considered in the round with all the family members. Families with more substantial wealth, for example, as I alluded to earlier, may choose to say, we're all connected here by a business that fundamentally funds many of our interests. But it may be that one child or family member is suited to running the OPCO, and another is suited to running shared family assets like commercial real estate or maybe private market investments. And then another is responsible for this sort of philanthropic arm. So they're doing different things that in ideally play to their different strengths and skills, but there are still those sort of financial ties that bind. And so there's an element of codependency there. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's something that needs to be super set carefully sort of considered because it can actually be a way to treat people equitably. They get the same dollar amount on day one of the transfer, just in different types of assets. But there's a realization that they're being given things to steward for the family for future generations that really play to their skill sets and where they can add the most value. But I think that one point that is worth mentioning there is that that, that equitable approach of splitting up different types of assets, that will not work if you see succession as being the photo, not the movie. And it's why sometimes this actual idea of succession as being not just a one-in-time planning exercise, but some big bang events where mom or pop owns the business on the Monday, and then by Tuesday, everything's handed over, is also a misnomer too. I mean, one of the things that you may want to consider as part of looking at your succession planning is basically treating the family assets in the round, giving assets equitably if that's what's right for your family, but then saying just because it was fair on the day of the transfer doesn't mean that we all need to check in as a family and with our trusted advisors every six months or a year. It could be that the family business is handed down to the one person of the next generation and has a really strong five-year run generating quite a lot of cash flow, reinvesting, growing. But it could be that that same dollar amount of assets in commercial real estate, listed equities, whatever it might be, has a very different performance profile over five years. And when the next generation lived that experience of very different sort of wealth outcomes, it doesn't necessarily always cut it to say, yes, but you all treated fairly on day one and you all got X amount of money on day one and the way that the markets pan out or the way that the business pans out and your own acumen or skill means that wherever you are today, you just work with it. For some families, the, the succession process might have to be a transfer date 
and then a regular review, review process and maybe even dynamic transfer. So the assets are passed over multiple years and it's done in sort of like a, a very gradual way to take into account the success or otherwise of the next generation in running the assets, giving them a trial run, as it were, but also what happens in terms of performance too. Yeah, that's good stuff. I want to be sensitive to your schedule there, Matthew. So let's kind of wrap up our conversation here about talking about a different aspect of succession, and that's the transition from business owner to being a steward of wealth. What do entrepreneurs need to consider kind of during this transition? Well, I mean, the first point I'll raise is my buzzword for this whole whole podcast, which is the idea of control. And giving up control can be really tough. It's not just about giving up control to the next generation, but it's also giving up some control as you move from being a business owner that had much of their wealth in a, an illiquid asset. It's in a privately held business that, whose value doesn't fluctuate on a day-to-day basis. If you then decide to become a diversified investor and you've got exposure to not just private markets, but also public markets, having a pool of wealth that suddenly moves with the latest headlines or the latest US inflation numbers or the latest geopolitical developments, that can be a really difficult pill to swallow. And it can be something that entrepreneurs, as they make that transition, really need to be aware of work closely with trusted advisors to figure out how they, they best sort of adapt to this marking to market, as we call it in the industry, but also how they can use a financial plan as their North Star so that when the discomfort comes, and it will come because the nature of investing is that there are downs as well as ups, is how can I use my financial plan to basically anchor me and help me to stay on course for my longer-term goals and not let my emotions dictate how I transact. And I think that the second point that's related to the control as well is that particularly if you're looking less at a succession and maybe more of a sort of a family exit, is that if you're still retaining a lot of your wealth in a single security, again, what we might call a, a concentrated position, it might come with super familiar risks particularly if you say still holding a sizable stake in your family business. But it's having an appreciation when you become a wealth manager of what the risks are of continuing to hold all of your eggs in one proverbial basket and saying, if I want to meet a different set of goals and I maybe got less control over what happens operationally in the firm, is holding so much of my wealth in a single security right for my long-term financial goals? And what can this idea of diversification offer me? So I think the first point is giving up control can be tough. And it's something that I think working closely with trusted advisors, thinking early and having a game plan can really help. And I think the second point as well is is having a focus on asset protection. If you talk, if you plan, and then you focus on execution, lots of stuff could potentially go right. You've done the very best to prepare yourself and prepare your stakeholders, your family. But inevitably, challenges can arise during a business sale, in an exit, or in the post-handover period to the next generation. And because families often find that their commercial and their personal wealth and their family well-being are so closely intertwined, 
these risks or these these challenges can sometimes also bring up they can potentially point out how you've maybe overlooked a risk a risk to your assets you haven't protected your assets sufficiently so it may be you're concerned about inflation it may be that litigation comes up it may be that you lose a key employee which makes your post transition or post sale business less appealing and so i think having a keen eye as well on sort of the asset protection side and thinking maybe less in terms of linear outcomes and saying i've got a plan to get from a to b but maybe thinking more in terms of scenarios i'd like to go from a to b but i could go from a to c and to or from a to d do i have a plan in case the upside case arises or the downside case so thinking as well in terms of not just asset protection but thinking in terms of scenarios rather than linear plans i think it's some of the areas from my conversations that can be the most challenging but also offer the most interesting opportunities for business owners as they they make that that transition to being wealth managers. Mhm. Yep. I mean you are speaking our language there Matthew. One of the first things that we do for for folks that are starting to talk about it and move to the planning phase is having a, a good understanding of the current valuation of the company understanding what those ultimate goals and objectives are and what financial resources are needed to accomplish those and then model out three different scenarios sort of a baseline exit scenario with a high and a low number and run the numbers and then that way when you are in negotiations and you're talking about what that exit number if it is an exit not a not a transition to the next generation but or even that it's just like understanding what are the financial resources you're going to need and how are we going to fund them so all yeah. good stuff all good stuff well matthew you've been great amazing thank you so much for spending almost an hour with me today i know it's getting late over there and you've got some children that probably need need some dinner so any last minute words here before we wrap up Well, I mean, thank you for your thoughtfulness. I might have my own succession issues with my own children if I'm not careful. But no, jokes aside, I mean, I really do think that focusing on succession as a talk, plan, do exercise would be something that I'd really love to to leave with with listeners today. Starting as early as you dare, I think, is another sort of real takeaway, and I think that really speaks to this idea of being transparent having good communication. If you start early it may be easier to let go if you've had enough conversations to to really have comfort about handing over that control. I think that this equity versus equality point is really worth giving some time to as well, particularly for those family business owners that have other substantial financial assets and have family members with different talents and and aptitudes. But I also think as well that you read a lot of eye-grabbing statistics about all the stuff that can go wrong in poorly planned succession. It makes entertaining TV as well, I believe. But what I would say is that don't let that daunt you and hinder you from ever having the conversation. There could be really tough conversations to have, but it's better to have those ahead of events and avoid 
financial family pitfalls than it is to dodge the tough conversations but then be potentially on the other side where the operating company, your own personal finances, and even the well-being of the family have been jeopardized. So stuff can go wrong, but if you talk, plan, do early enough, hopefully you'll really set yourselves up for a smooth smooth exit, a smooth transition, and a smooth life beyond the business. Great. Matthew, again, thank you for your time. You've been very generous with it. For the listeners out there, I highly encourage you to find Matthew Carter on LinkedIn and uh, subscribe to him. He puts out a lot of wonderful content and great perspective on this whole topic. So, Matthew, thanks again. If you ever find yourself here in Austin, Texas, look us up. We'll treat you to some excellent barbecue. Thank you so much. And if we could manage a trip to Corpus Christi, I'd love to compare too. (laughs) Well, we might be able to work that. So, well, thanks again, and we'll let you go. Have a good night. You too. Take care. On behalf of our entire team here at ATX Wealth Partners, we hope you enjoyed this program. And if you have any questions or comments, feel free to email us at atxwealthpartners at ubs.com. And remember this, know your options, be informed, and plan early. Until next time, take care and be well. <laughs>